text. This morning we will look at uh, Proverbs 14, uh, 15, 19, and 24. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you'll have to do it again. Do not testify against your neighbor without just cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I'll do to them as they've done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to explore the theme of anger this morning. It's something that we all have to grapple with, whether it's in our own uh, hearts and minds at times, which is true of all of us, whether we're being the recipients of anger, of the relationships around us, or even navigating the anger that is sort of in the waters of our culture continually. We can sift through this in a discerning way so that we can be uh, people of uh, wisdom and of peace who truly reflect the glory and the love of Jesus Christ in our lives. So we're going to look at three things this morning from these texts. Uh, Firstly, how can anger have a disintegrating effect? Secondly, when anger is an appropriate response... And then lastly, the grace that empowers gentleness. So first, let's look at how anger can have a disintegrating effect. As we work through the Proverbs, we see uh, a theme emerging. And it's that when our anger is disordered or disproportionate or dwelled on, uh, it rots the bones. It has this disintegrating effect in us. Notice in the... um, The first uh, verse there, 1429, there's this contrast between being an understanding person and a hasty person. The understanding person uh, is slow to anger. The hasty person is quick to anger. The understanding uh, person, there's there's a reasoning, a pondering, a pausing, a listening in the posture. The hasty person with explosive anger, there is no reasoning, there is no pondering, there's no pausing, there's no listening. There's none of those characteristics that describe uh, the person of understanding. We're given this parallel here uh, quite intentionally because it it invites us to consider the end result of this, which is that um, the explosive anger leads in this exaltation of folly. You see that in the text there. To exalt something is to put it on display. It's to make an announcement. It's like the proverb is provoking us to see that if we're not people of sort of patience and process, our anger will be quick and and we will not be slow, we'll be fast and it'll be explosive and we're sort of making an announcement of our own ignorance. And I've done that many times and so have probably two or three of you. And when we put our ignorance out on display, there's this folly and it begs the question, and why would you put your folly up for everyone to see? And I think that when, as a reflection on the times when I've been quick to anger and I want to put my anger on display, I'm trying to fire up my base. Who else feels the way I feel and who else is outraged in this moment? And can I rally the troops to uh, defend my ego perhaps in this moment? If you look at verse 29, it says that envy rots the bones. The Hebrew word is kanah which is translated envy, but there's a range of meaning, as in all languages. It could also be translated jealousy. It could also be translated anger. 
the idea behind kana that rots the bones is something is bubbling inside you like a cauldron. So disintegration in the body, disintegration in the community. Uh, as moderns, we would take that proverb and say, well, we're saying the body keeps score. That's what it's saying. And if I have this sort of this unchecked bubbling cauldron inside me for, for prolonged periods of time, my body's definitely going to keep score. Provo- provokes us to sort of consider um, how this is all playing out in contrast to this tranquil heart, this heart that is at peace, that's giving life to the body. Now, I want to point out that the text does not say that the tranquil heart has no anger. It says slow anger. So the goal of Christian maturity is not to somehow reach some sort of state of spiritual Zen where we are people who are just not phased by anything. Christianity means you're sort of stoic and you're never phased up or down and just steady Eddie and you never get angry. The goal of Christian maturity is not no anger. It is godly, godlike, slow anger. So as we consider this, we see that anger ruins our ability to make good judgments. It sort of comes up and up throughout the Proverbs. That For those of you who are here who are uh, healthcare professionals, you could, you could teach this uh, m- uh, much more effectively than I could because you understand that when, when a person g- gets enraged, there's chemicals flowing over the brain, there's things that are happening to the amygdala, there's adrenaline going on in the body. Like there's, there's a, there is a... Uh, an aspect to your processing power that goes down and uh, we make poor decisions and so the anger distorts our view the anger as you work through the proverbs it distorts lots of different views it can distort the view of ourself can distort the view of others it distorts our view of the situation of reality it can come out in destructive words outflow with destructive choices and actions and if you look at chapter 19, verse 19, what it says of the person who's got this sort of disintegrating anger at operation in their life, it says, even if you rescue them, you have to do it again. Something is disordered. Something about our anger is disproportionate. Something is going on in our heart and our mind that is creating a pattern that is going to continue, and I need to examine it. I need to go to God prayerfully. I need to have honest diagnosis. I'm not going to re-preach last week's sermon, but I need to have friends in my life who can speak truthfully to me with, with candor and care so that I don't just keep on rolling in this pattern of the way that I'm seeing myself or this relationship or the situation and, and staying in this seething anger. If you look at uh, chapter 24 and verse 28, there's this note there. It says that the anger can be without just cause. There's this injustice to it. You'll notice that from 20, 28 to 29, it flows into this payback idea. I will pay them back for what they've done to me. There's this self-talk, this inner conversation that's, that's somehow spiraling and things are not good. This invites us to consider that when something is disordered, when something is... is um, is disproportionate about our anger. It's, it, it's controlling us. And whatever is controlling us, whatever we sort of wake up and chase after, that's our Lord. That's our God. That's our King. Uh, some of you may be exploring Christian faith with us this morning, and you would you'd say the religious language doesn't apply to you because you, you don't believe in God or, or, or the Lord doesn't make sense to you. Consider it this way. Whatever you are waking up in the morning and you're saying your life is all about this, 
the thing that gives you meaning is this. The reason why life is worth living and not just being a negative you know, nihilist and say the sun goes supernova and there's no existence of humanity, so who cares? The reason you're telling yourself, no, I have to wake up and be a person who lives a life that's beneficial for the city and the meaning of life is that. That thing is your Lord because you're waking up every day and you're saying, because life is all about this, I therefore orient my life towards getting that. So the moment something blocks it, takes it away, you fail to achieve it, there is an anger that's going to rise up that is disproportionate. Because beyond just being a human that would naturally experience sadness and disappointment and anger, the king has been killed. The Lord has been dethroned. The Messiah is dead. And it's a mini-Messiah. It's the God of your health, of your vocation. It's the God of the letters after your name. It's the God of your life of comfort. It's the, it's the, oh, you say I'm a person of justice and care and mercy in the city. But the failure for the government to align with your perspectives, to legislate the laws that would govern our city in the way that you would see it to be true, those things keep failing. The wrong horse keeps, keeps losing the, the political race and they should be winning it, but they're not winning it. And so there is a seizing and bubbling anger because the king is dead. That's what this is. This anger is provoking us to see if, I'm, if that bubbling cauldron of anger is in me because my Messiah keeps failing me, I'm going to need to get rescued over and over and over and over and over because, the, quite frankly, the Messiah is too small. And so when we, we can elevate good things, and I say this often, all the time, I say this too much, but we elevate good things, give them that coronation ceremony, they become the ultimate thing. That's what breeds this sort of disordered anger, because then the loss is not sort of an appropriate sadness, it's this unjust, disproportionate rage. Anything between my, me and my God leads to this bone-rotting anger. Let's move on. The second thing is, when is anger an appropriate response because it certainly is and when the things that grieve God's heart grieve our heart anger is an appropriate response if you go back to 1429 it says that the one who is slow to anger um, has great understanding our God is slow to anger when God when when in the Old Testament Moses asks God to disclose himself his nature God show me your holiness God's response, the first time God describes himself, you find it in Exodus uh, chapter 34, he says, The Lord is a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Does not say he is a God of no anger, which is what the modern contract of God wants. I can't believe in a God of anger. What? Then how can you believe in justice if you don't believe in anger? When the strong eat the weak, that should bother you. You walk by somebody's broken life because they've been oppressed by someone of power or politics or privilege or whatever, and they've used that position of power to crush someone else. That should give rise to anger. and That's appropriate anger. So we can't believe in a God of no anger, otherwise we don't believe in a God of love. Because the opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is hate. And to quote Rebecca Pepper, who's an evangelist and author, wrote a book, uh, well, she wrote many books, but she, she would say it this way, the final form of hate is indifference. I don't care. Your life is going sideways, you're going off a cliff? I could care less. I got Netflix to catch up on. That is the opposite of love. I don't care 
what happens to you and where your life is headed. So because our God cares deeply about where his creation was headed, our God cared deeply about where the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, was headed, he cares deeply and his, and his love moves him to tremendous compassion. And so the anger of God is an appropriate anger because it is his love in motion, his love in motion towards not, not the people, but the thing that is destroying the ones that he loves. This is the appropriate anger of God. This is why when God describes himself, he doesn't say, I'm a God of no anger. He says, slow to anger. And by the way, the patience and the slowness of God to anger is cosmic. Nobody in this room is as patient and as, and as loving and as gracious as God before they get angry. You and I get angry in the morning. We want justice by lunch. You read through the Old Testament and before in every in every context where there is God pouring out justice and, and judgment on large people groups as a result of their folly, their sin, their wayward ways. P.S. in most cases, as you look through history of the nations that where, where God had poured out the judgment, part of the worship practices of those nations was they were abusing women as part of their uh, worship ceremonies. They were sacrificing children as a part of their ceremonies. Those two things keep showing up. It's abhorrent to God. And he is so slow to anger. He is moving the stars in signs and wonders and miracles throughout the Old Testament in ways you and I can't conceive and, and, and Hollywood has gleaned from, quite frankly. To just be like, in what ways, <laughs> and, uh, from a, a gracious cosmic you know, display the magnitude of his patience through miracles until finally the judgment comes out. He is so slow to anger. This is his nature. And the reason he's so slow is because he is a God of saving grace who, who wants us to come to the end of ourselves, to turn to him, to trust him so that we can truly flourish in our hearts and our minds as humans. And to truly flourish is to be people of wisdom, his wisdom, and to truly be people who flourish according to his wisdom requires, as I've said many times, that we are people of worship. Not wayward worship of the small thing that I made God, but of God. And so there is an appropriate response. It does look like God's anger. And he describes it as slow. Actually, the, the, the Hebrew for slow is arek. And it means long-nosed. So when you read it in the original Hebrew, it'll say, God says uh, of himself, the Lord is a God merciful and gracious, long-nosed. We have, we have this sort of language in, in our culture, right? Oh man, he's got a short wick. Oh, this person's got a long wick, right? In the Hebrew culture at that time, that phrase meant to be a person of tremendous patience, to be long-nosed. The opposite of being long-nosed was to have nostril blasts. So it's like, a, you have to remember too, they, in, the, in the ancient Hebrew, when God was disclosing himself and everybody's hearing this, this is an auditory culture. It's an imaginative language, ancient Hebrew. So people weren't running around in the desert with their own copy of, you know, the writings. It's auditory. It's inviting you to, it's inviting you to imagine long-nosed versus short nostril blasts. I'm going to read again from Rebecca Pippard. I mentioned the author uh, it, from her book, Speaking Hope, as a... Speaking hope has its reasons. She says to this, to the person who would say, well, I don't know that I want to believe in a God who would get angry. She says, we tend to be taken back by the thought that God could get angry. How could a deity who's perfect and loving ever be angry? We take pride in our tolerance and the excesses of others. So what's God's problem? But love detests what destroys its beloved. Real love stands against the deception, the lie, the sin that destroys. 
And we see this in the cross. We see this in the cross, that it is the pouring out of God's judgment and His anger and His wrath. Not because He's just putting something cosmically on display for no reason, but because in the garden, the original sin, of course, is to reject God in favor of being God, to live in indifference to God, and to be indifferent is to hate. And so we are all born as humans, not in a state of neutrality before God, but we're actually born into a condition, that condition of being I don't want God. I don't need God. I'll live life and be totally fulfilled apart from God. That's what the Bible calls sin. That is the sin under all sin. So God's anger is love and motion moving towards that sin of indifference and the destructive force. And he moves through the entire Old Testament to the cross where not only is the uh, guilt of all of our sin taken away, but in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are shown the intention of God, which is the restoration of all things that he would restore you and I to enjoy all things, to spend eternity with him here in the restored world, the new heavens and the new earth, as God intended, in a true flourishing. And so wisdom for you and I today is to begin to move into congruence of that. And so that includes considering the ways in which we are angry, considering the ways in which we handle the anger of our uh, culture. God's love in motion, his anger. I'm going to give you another picture of this, and it's at when Jesus was at Lazarus' tomb uh, before he raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus doesn't stand there and go, well, I'm going to raise this guy from the dead, so this doesn't really need to bother me. I'm just God hovering around a couple feet you know, above the ground, sort of pretending to be a human, but I'm really not connected to their sorrow. I'm just going to raise him from the dead. That's not what the Bible gives us at all. It gives us Jesus at the tomb, and he's angry at death. It says in the Greek that Jesus is anabramasato. He's indignant. He is, he is, in the Greek, snorting with anger. A lot of use of the nose here with anger. Have you noticed this? <laughs> A lot of vivid imagery of just... Jesus is at the grave and he is indignant. He's so angry, he's shaking. It goes on after that Greek word. It gives us the next word, which is anthrasaxen, which is disturbed and shaking. And then it gives us the next word, Jesus wept. And it's silent tears. And then he raises Lazarus from death itself. Now Lazarus died again. But in Christ's resurrection, the resurrection unto life forever, which is what eventually is in, in store for you and I. But before that happened, there was the rage at the grave, the anger towards the destruction of the ones that he loves. That's the love of God. So for you and I to have anger that's appropriate... We can't baptize our anger, which is really uh, a defense of our own ego in the moment. It's actually that i got to love you, and I hate this thing that is either destroying you or destroying our relationship or destroying our, you know, whatever that thing may be. And I've, I've got to, if I'm going to have a godly anger, it can't just be like this broad shotgun blast that just takes out whatever's in front of me. It's got to be specific and targeted. The cross of Jesus Christ shows how God's love and anger is ultimately specific and and targeted. His love for us so great, he pours it on himself. That the blood of goats and bulls never once atoned for any sin ever, but they were just postponing it, passing it over, the Passover of our sin for millennia until God pours it out on himself in Jesus Christ. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. This is the love of our God. God's anger, it's not like the you know, the embarrassing uncle of God's characteristics that we don't want to talk about. 
His anger magnifies his love and mercy for us and his sense of justice for all that is wrong and broken in the world. God seeks to effectively strike at the heart of evil, and he did that. And that's why when Christ was on the cross before he died, his last words were not, Father, get them. Father, judge them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The love and the mercy and the justice of God converging at the cross. For you, for me. If I love what God loves, if I hate what God hates, then I will hate it the way he hates it. And if I'm hating things the way God hates it, my anger will not be rotting my bones. It'll be like fire in my bones. And I'll be loving and caring for people. And they will not be getting the sense from me that I hate them and I'm rejecting them. But that I love and care for them and I'm quite angry at this thing that I see is destroying them. Lastly, the grace that empowers gentleness. The grace that empowers gentleness, it comes as we submit to the word of God, to the spirit of God working in us. This grace, it comes as we recognize that the same grace that saves us teaches us. I didn't put the text there, but that's the beginning of Titus. It says the same grace that saves teaches. And so there is a grace that empowers this kind of gentleness. When I'm angry, as we've been talking about, I need, to, I need to own it. And in this room, you know, there's a lot of tragedy and sorrow. There are people who have been hurt and abused. And the whole time I've been preaching this, you are thinking to yourself, yeah, but Paul, the thing that if I told you, it would make your, I mean, it, it's abhorrent and terrible. And there is no justification for the pain and the hurt that has gone on, if that describes you in a room of this size, it's many of us. But, you know, the anger that can come from tragedy and horror and abuse that happens in your life, it can result in a lot of interpretation about you as a person that is actually not congruent with how God sees you. And the hurt and the pain and the sorrow and the destruction can cause you to see yourself in ways that aren't getting any amens from heaven because it's not the way God sees you. Because the thing that happened to you is not a commentary on whether or, God, whether or not God loves you. The cross is the commentary. The empty tomb, the resurrection, what is coming to you, life in him, restoration of your heart, your mind, your soul at the deepest level, God's grace available for you. That is the commentary of how God feels about you. And so... There is a grace that empowers gentleness so that we can be people of gentleness and have a response that is a gentle answer that turns away wrath rather than saying, I've had terrible things happen to me. I'm destitute for a life of wrath. It is not true. When we're angry, we need to own it and confess it to God. that He's the one uh, that can bring the healing and that as we do this and turn to him and rely on him deeply... This act of confession, this is vulnerability, this is weakness, this is the only possible way for there to be reconciliation. And in some cases, there will not be reconciliation because forgiveness is something you and I can do. We're called to do it, commanded to do it. We can forgive because that has to do with us. Reconciliation does not just have to do with us. It has to do with us and the other party. 
And so the only possible hope for reconciliation is for us to own and confess our own our anger. But 15.1 talks about the, ang- the gentleness that turns away wrath, the patient one that calms the quarrel. I can't give a response that gen- that's gentle unless I'm gentle. I can't give a response that's patient unless I'm patient. And I can't self-generate gentleness. And I can't self-generate patience. So what is my hope? What do I do? These, my friend, the good news, are these is, this is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. That as we, the indwelling of the Spirit does His work, as we are in the Word of God, as we come together in prayer on Sundays, together in this corporate way, we go through this liturgy of confession and renewal and trust in God. And that day-to-day in your own life, as you form liturgies in your home, the ways in which you stop to reflect, to meditate on it, to allow Him to heal you, heal your heart, heal your mind, heal your anger. This gentleness is, is something that God does as we are in partnership with the means of grace that he has availed uh, to us. So we don't need to avoid anger. We don't need to repay anger. We can give over our anger to God. We can let him absorb it. That is what the cross is. It is the absorbing of our sin. It is the absorption of grief. It is the absorption of God's anger. We turn to God. He invites us to come and cry on the couch so that he can absorb our anger. So that we are not paralyzed by it, crushed by it. But rather we can be changed so that we're not pulled down into anger. But rather we're able to love through anger. You may say, well, you know, guess what, preacher? This sounds a whole lot like, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. And that's a cliche. It's the kingdom. It's not a cliche. It's precisely what God did. He hated your sin and he loved you, sinner. The world has made it a cliche. It's the kingdom. Oh, and P.S., kingdoms have come and gone. Christ has not. It's only grown and it will be eternal and forever. This is the goodness of, of, of uh, the grace that empowers our gentleness that is available for us as we, we turn to God. You know, I close with this. Counsel, counselors can be very thoughtful and skilled and they lead us in exercises to, to mitigate you know, our anger, our conversations, or sort of explore our narratives. And they're very helpful. And we're thankful for the gifts that God's given to them. However, they're limited because no counselor is going to say to you before you leave the meeting, oh, and by the way, here's a new narrative for your life. Live into this. They're not going to say that. They're not going to do it. They can't do it. They can't give it. But God, in the gospel, says to you and I repeatedly, here's a new narrative for your life. Now, you live into this, my child. You're mine. I love you. The tragedies and the things that have occurred in your life, they will not define you. They will not hold you. Yes, they're bringing sorrow, but I can lead you through this sorrow. Yes, your life will be full of many tears, but I am with you in those tears. Yes, you feel like you're going to be swallowed up, but you will not be swallowed up. You will not drown. You can look at my my track record, which is millennia, of saving grace, and it is available for you. Live into this new narrative that you are a child of God, that your very life is in my hands. The word of God declares, look at the birds, look at the flowers. I'll take care of you. I'll provide for you. Your future is secure. Do not worry about this. You're a part of a community of faith of brothers and sisters who are sitting all around you who believe this, who believe in the resurrection. Your life is not going to come to ruin. It will not come to ruin. He will not allow it to come to ruin. The community of faith will not allow it to come to ruin. 
The new narrative of the new creation. Yes, the old creation is still rumbling on in your heart and your mind, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that the new creation has come. And we live into this new narrative. We trip all over ourselves, but we live into it. We thank God for His grace. So, may the Spirit of God who indwells you continue to keep you and do deep and rich renewal in your hearts and your minds so that you are not quickly and easily consumed by anger. May God's grace be towards you. May He renew you and revive you so that you do not go into the city like an angry parrot echoing the groanings and the frustrations that are all around us in the culture, may we as a church find rest for our souls in this gospel narrative. May our hearts and our minds be continually strengthened and reflect, refreshed and be people of quietness and peace. In a city that is clamoring for good news, may you and I go out and minister this good news. Amen. Let's pray.